0: When Blanche wins tickets to meet Mr. Burt Reynolds, the house explodes in celebration, but that quickly changes when Sophia learns she won't be attending due to lack of tickets. This decision starts a domino effect that will leave Dorothy, Blanche, and Rose behind bars and Sophia rubbing elbows with celebs. Will the ladies ever get out of jail? Will Rose inspire Meg, the sex worker, to change her ways? Is sex work real work? Yes to all of those. Oh, but let's get to the episode anyway to talk about guest stars, Burt Reynolds, and pet psychics in this week's episode, Ladies of the Evening. Thank you for the friendship We've come so far and traveled wide You're my best friends I could never I love when we party, dance and sing And laugh just doing our thing No matter Now usually I don't talk about the behind the scenes stuff much because there's so much going on I think you could probably do an entire separate show just about that stuff. But in this case I do want to touch on something that changed from season 1 to season 2. Being the youngest of the actresses but portraying the eldest, Estelle Getty wasn't super fond of being in her 60s but famous for looking like she's in her 80s. So with the success and money of season one, Estelle took her summer break to do a little self-care, which involved getting a facelift. The makeup team already spent quite some time getting Estelle's makeup just right and wrinkled, but after she tightened everything up even more, her prep took over an hour. I often wonder if she ever regretted that at all, only for that reason. We're greeted this episode by a strange man's behind, which is sticking out from under the kitchen sink as a purple and white sweater Dorothy and teal-dressed Rose watch on. As the man in the Navy work overalls makes his way through the house mumbling, grumbling, tapping on the walls with this flashlight, the ladies follow. It turns out that, unlike when they had the mouse situation, they are willing to call an exterminator for their bug situation. Turns out they have silverfish and water bugs in their drains and Baltarara androoperis under the baseboards. That's a fancy way of saying cockroaches, not Christos Sartinzakis, the president of Greece at the time. As Dorothy jokes about the scientific name sounding Greek, the exterminator clarifies that it means a cockroach, leaving a confused rose to hope the foul politician gets voted out. I don't know that he was, but President Christos was not seen as a cockroach. He was actually quite celebrated. Back to the bugs at hand. Playing the overly well-spoken exterminator is Phil Rubenstein. He passed away in 1992 with 92 acting credits to his name. He was best known for his work in RoboCop 2, but was also in Tango and Cash, Mama's Family, Night Court, Who's the Boss, Highway to Heaven, Alf, Newhart, Taxi, Kojak, Night Rider, Hill Street Blues, Murder, She Wrote, Silverspoons, Moodlining, Jeffersons, and of course, La La. But his career wasn't limited to television. He was also in films such as Mannequin, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, and he even directed Elvira's Mistress of the Dark. Appropriately enough for today's episode, he also had a gig on TJ Hooker.
1: So sorry to interrupt, (laughs) Alicia. This is Coco. Hi, Coco. I would personally like to thank him for making Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. Oh, yeah. I watched it so many, so many times when I was young. I love it. I think it it's still kind of funny. Yes, she's got it all. She's everything you've ever wanted in a movie. A woman and a casserole.
0: Is that the movie that originated the head
1: joke? Which one?
0: Well, the drag queens all use it still to this day where um she the letter falls off the marquee at the theater. And hits her and the guy says, how's your head? And she goes, I've never had any complaints.
1: Hell yeah. And is that it? Yeah, that's like.
0: That's hugely iconic. I can't remember if it's from that one or not. But yeah, that was a huge, that was like kind of her big, her first big movie and probably her biggest still to this day. So that's pretty cool that he directed it.
1: Maybe only, I think it's her only starring role.
0: Oh, really? I thought she did a bunch of little ones. I
1: think she did other, she has other like releases, but they're like her doing, I think, her hosting oh,
0: thing. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Mistress
1: Mistress of the Dark is a is a one and done classic. <laughs> cleavage classic.
0: A cleavage, cla- this is a certified cleavage classic.
1: But yeah, Elvira is very funny. I can't think of what her name is off the top of my head. And she's but, a redhead. Uh, She's a very, oh, Cassandra mm-hmm. Peterson. Mm-hmm.
0: Perfect. Nice. nice
1: she's a very funny actor. Yeah. She's a, she has great comedic timing. Yeah. I and, think yeah, people awesome.
0: dismissed her. Yeah. I always grew up with her being kind of a joke. And now that I'm older, I'm like, no, she's campy and hilariously comedically brilliant. Her timing and wit, all of that.
1: And always in control. Yeah. So I, badass. Yeah. I kind
0: of wish I had appreciated her throughout my youth because- That would have been really cool.
1: Hey, Elvira, we got us a couple more volunteers. Great. Just grab a tool and start banging. After
0: using $10 words when simple ones would do, the plumber's voracious vocabulary is cleared up by Dorothy. So the next step is to just check under the house. Coco, I know you have some experience with this, which I think I maybe did once as a kid to to either get something or help my parents, but that was it. I am not an under-the-house person, mostly and almost exclusively because of spiders. But you used to have to do it for your job.
1: And I'm so glad that part of my life is over. I really (laughs) did not like it. I used to work for the cable company when I was living in L.A., and also I worked for a home theater company, so we were just always running wires in attics and crawl spaces and basements and underground, you know, under-the-house crawl spaces. And there were always, like, mummified rats and stuff in there. It was terrible. One time... One time I had like a panic attack under a house, and that was pretty cool.
0: That sounds fun and safe.
1: It was great. I was working by myself, and I was feeling bad about myself, and I was feeling poorly that day because I was hungover, and I had a little freakout. I was sobbing under a house in Glendale, California.
0: And that was your wake-up call?
1: It was, uh, no, it wasn't. (laughs)
0: So that wasn't the moment that you're like, I gotta get out of here. I gotta move or do something. No. <laughs> and we had talked about this not that long ago, even like before this episode, and you had said that it wasn't until now, even though it's been like what almost ten years, that it wasn't until now that you realized that that's what that was. That that was a panic attack. That you weren't just like, oh, I had a bad day at work.
1: Throughout, uh, yeah, the past couple of years, I've, I've, as I reflect on my past, I do, I do recognize more things that were more, uh, more red flags or Mm. more alarming, more alarms that I should have, uh, that I wish I or someone I knew would have pointed out or recognized or something. Fun topic.
0: (laughs) Oh, the joy of growing up. Reading the thoughts from my mind, Rose shares the same concern I do about exterminators. How can you live every day knowing your job is to kill things for a living? Dorothy keeps it simple. The guy is probably simple. It's a bit of an unfair blanket statement that just because someone has a big bug or a pizza or anything else on their car, or maybe they work a job that maybe doesn't seem like it makes someone ponder the deep complexities of the universe— Doesn't mean they're just a dummy. Although I did go on a horrible date with a guy that did the micro cleaning at Intel and he was very content having zero stimulation. Which was a red flag, which is why I never called him again. (laughs) Before the girls can decide if their exterminator is a Mensa member or not, Ellen, I mean Blanche, comes bursting through the front door. Dressed in a light purple top with a floral purple overshirt, Blanche is nearly breathless when explaining she is covered in tingles and ecstasy. A pink house dress wearing Sophia, armed with a watering can, gives us the first oh boy when she responds with, We know what happened, implying sex based on Blanche's description, but let us guess which part of the Middle East he's from. Which is just kind of a weird statement. It's not like Blanche has exclusively been dating Middle Eastern men. I'm not even quite sure why it's an oh boy, it just feels like one. At this juncture in society, it's like any time you go out of your way to specifically mention race or anything, it's like, Ugh, I don't know what you're doing.
1: Yeah, why is, it well, yeah. It's
0: probably not coming from a good place. Nearly out of breath, Blanche ignores Sophia and goes on. She just won a raffle at the movie theater, the same theater that is going to be hosting the premiere of the new Burt Reynolds movie the following night. The rest of the girls struggle to meet Blanche's level of excitement, but support her anyway. That is, until she continues with the prize info. Not only did she get a ticket to the movie, she got three passes to the after party. A private party, hosted by the one, the only, Mr. Burt Reynolds. This news creates a moment that has recently become one of my favorite gifts. As Dorothy grabs the arm of the chair she's sitting in, she lets out a guttural scream. Rose looks around frantically before pointing to herself, realizing she's one of the three going. And Sophia's jaw drops. Meeting in the middle of the living room, Blanche, Rose, and Dorothy grab onto one another, jumping for joy and turning in circles. To the side of them, a tiny Sophia does a little half-jump something between a baby learning how to jump and a toy monkey you'd wind up. As she continues her chicken cooing of glee, the three girls turn to her, realizing she's celebrating when she maybe shouldn't be. But let's be real for a second here. What kind of program gives out an odd number of tickets? When Blanche sees that Sophia might be expecting to go, she starts with a, Sophia, honey. Knowing what follows won't be good news, Sophia gives us another oh boy, saying she's tired of being the Tonto of the group. Tonto was the indigenous American sidekick to the radio and TV show star The Lone Ranger. When the creators were growing up, they were told by local indigenous Americans that Tonto meant wild one. So once the character was created and needed a name, the writer went with Tonto, which in Italian, Portuguese, and Spanish means moron. Besides the fact that Tonto, even in the newer movie adaptation, has always been played by a white man and his name was actually a bit of a slur and he spoke in broken English, he was on the show merely to be someone for the Lone Ranger to speak to. When it came down to hanging out, he was kind of the older, excluded character, something Sophia was not interested in feeling.
1: Extra fun fact about the recent Lone Ranger movie, Mm -hmm. Tonto was played by Johnny Depp. Yes. And The Lone Ranger himself was played by Army Hammer. Yes. Perhaps the most cursed film ever made.
0: <laughs> when did that come out? Like twenty twelve?
1: I would guess that, but I can't say that.
0: So yeah, so we're talking about Johnny Depp is trying to hold on to his career.
1: And it's like post yeah, probably twenty twelve. Yeah, it was post It was post pirates. Yeah. Post pirate. Well, mid pirates.
0: Oh, and Army Hammer, yeah. He's coming off social network and yeah. he's his star is rising. And, yeah, and Johnny Depp was like, oh, yeah, I totally, I have some dark features, so I feel fine playing a Native American. An army hammer, I mean. Horse dead. Blanche is sorry. She tried to get another ticket, but it was a no-go. The only solution in Sophia's eyes is to draw cards. While the luck of the cards might make things more fair, it seems like since Sophia missed out on seeing the play Evita when it came to town, she should get a chance to meet Burt Reynolds. Not hesitating to push back, Dorothy and Rose refuse to miss out on meeting him. Sophia asks, E too, Blanche? Or, and you? This gives Blanche an opportunity to defend her love for Burt. Sure, he didn't win an Oscar for Deliverance, but that's all due to the Academy being jealous. To make her point, she says they could have put stage and screen icon Laurence Olivier in Burt's classic farce, Cannonball Run, showing that it isn't so much what the actor can do, but what they're asked to work with. While Burt won plenty of awards, from Golden Globes to Emmys, Laurence Olivier received honorary degrees, four Oscars, two BAFTAs, five Emmys, and three Golden Globes. Additionally, he has awards, statues, and theaters named after him. So he is kind of a big deal. Sophia doesn't take the news well, so she sees herself out to commiserate with the rest of the garbage. Meanwhile, the forgotten exterminator makes his way back into the house, joking that the excitement the girls are exhibiting is due to his tight jumpsuit, not because of Bert. Let's take a moment to dissect why the ladies are so excited. What can be said about Mr. Bert Reynolds? Youngsters, I know, I used to feel like you did. Bert would show up, and I was like, Huh? All of that for. Him? But let me tell you, now that I'm older and I can understand the appeal of a big hairy man like Bert, he's not my cup of tea, but I wouldn't pour him down the drain either. By the time he made his cameo with the girls, he already had a 30-year career under his belt— Starting with little gigs on little shows, it didn't take long for his star power to be recognized, leading to bigger jobs. By the 1960s, his rugged good looks, charming smile, and acting talent brought him to the big time with spots on The Twilight Zone, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and Perry Mason. Then came longer-than-one episode plot lines on shows like Gunsmoke and his own Dan August. But what made him a household name was his role as Lewis in Deliverance, a famous movie with a famous banjo known for a famous... threat, shall we say? After his breakout film role, more movies were offered, like The Longest Yard and 1977's hit Smokey and the Bandit. The Bandit was a good fit for Bert, as he was kind of known to be a bit of a bad boy and a playboy. Then more movies and their sequels like Cannonball Run and a multitude of Smokey and the Bandits. Through the 80s, Burt continued working on films like Heat and All Dogs Go to Heaven. By the time Cop and a Half came out in the 90s, Burt was a little bit of a has-been. Luckily, he landed the lead on the sitcom Evening Shade, bringing him back into everyone's living room for the show's four-year run. Then, the reynolds Sassance in the late 1990s, where he starred in classics like Strip Tease and one of Coco's favorites, Boogie Nights. While he never had another big hit movie or show, Burt continued working frequently until his passing in 2018. And all of that was just Burt's acting career. He was the sex symbol of his day, having public relationships and marriages, including to Lonnie Anderson, who he left for a cocktail waitress, he then went on to sue. But after all of that, in his later years, he claimed that the love of his life, the smoky to his bandit, was Sally Field. Living in and loving Florida, Bert had his dinner theater there, as discussed in season one. He also passed away there in 2018. Overall, you kind of always heard decent things about him, and I don't think he ever really had a big scandal besides his bad facelift and some tax issues, which is really saying something about a man who looks like that from the era he grew up in. And speaking of his relationships, Coco, just a couple of episodes back, we played that really beautiful Dinah Shore clip after I had talked about her. And you had found that one from her show where she was singing to her ex-boyfriend, Burt Reynolds, and it was a really beautiful clip that you had found, and you could tell that they still had love for each other on some level.
1: It's one of the most – it's like one of the most um, genuine, like Mm. open things I've seen him do he's really expressing that to her it's really really lovely yeah
0: kind of a vulnerability yeah that's what she's singing at him and they're kind of holding each other in each other's arms and he really just kind of you see those walls come down so go to youtube and put in dinah shore singing burt reynolds and you can watch it and tear up a little bit like we did back to the roach man it turns out in addition to the menagerie of insects they already know about in their home they also have wood consuming termites Worried about her home's condition, Blanche panics before being informed of old Bugman's company motto, We get rid of termites. To get rid of the infestations, they are going to have to fumigate the house, meaning they throw a big old tent over it, bomb the hell out of it with bug-killing gas, and let it all settle. That means the ladies have but one choice. Turn the Burt Reynolds experience into a whole weekend, getting a bougie hotel and all. That's my kind of weekend plans. Have one thing lead to another, no pre-planning. Oh, how I miss those days. After agreeing they'll stay at an affordable hotel at the beach, which, thank you ladies, I can't tell you how many times my gals would find a place and be like, it's so reasonable, only 500 bucks per person for the weekend. And I'm just in the corner like, cool. Anyway, Dorothy tries to bring Sophia in on the excitement surrounding the getaway. Still hurt about not getting to meet Bert, she sarcastically and rhetorically asks, oh, I get to go? I don't have to die here with the bugs. And this brings us to Coco's favorite moment of the
1: episode, Sophia's pizza. It's fun enormous.
0: <laughs> it is a huge slice. And it's got all the toppings. You got sausage, peppers, all of it. I, f-
1: I don't know. Did I see ham on there? Maybe. Did I want to? Definitely. <laughs>
0: For being raised Catholic, Dorothy often displays an enviable level of non-caring when it comes to things like meeting Burt Reynolds. If my mom or a friend so much as frowned, I don't know that I wouldn't be able to guilt myself into passing it up. So who cares if Sophia's devastated? They're meeting Burt Reynolds. From the outside, it may look like a Miami Beach hotel, but once we're inside where the girls are now staying, we see it's the same place Stan was staying in Stan's return from season one. Only now there's an extra bed for Sophia, although she doesn't care which one she gets, unless it's the one with Burt Reynolds. Ignoring her passive attempts at pity, Dorothy makes the bed decision and takes the one closer to the TV, leaving Sophia with the window view. Trying a new angle, Sophia begins to lightly cough, then pointing out it was just the leftover from when she caught pneumonia walking to Dorothy's school to give her a forgotten cannoli. Now Dorothy is fed up. So is Sophia. Fine, she says. Leave. I'll just be here coughing. As Sophia tantrums her way into Rose and Blanche's connected room, Blanche comes in carrying a stunning bright blue sequined dress. Blanche can't be bothered to confront— Nope. Blanche can't be bothered to comfort the pathetic Sophia, she has more urgent things to worry about, like if Bert will like the blue disco ball she's holding. Never one to miss a joke, Dorothy implies he would be the one wearing it, and it would complement his very famous chest hair. As beautiful as Blanche's dress is, she's been letting it gather dust for about 15 years, as she hasn't worn it since 1972. Well, she says it was at a presidential inauguration she last wore it, she didn't clarify that it wasn't the United States president. That's why Dorothy is a bit shocked and far more appalled that Blanche slept with former president Nixon. A man that, well, you know what they say about your beauty not only being on the inside but the outside and all of that and it works the other way. What I'm saying is he wasn't a very good looking man and he was a bad man. He was an ugly bad man. So it's no surprise the writers took the opportunity to throw shade at Nixon by saying when he's naked, he probably has the same genital profile as a plastic doll. Back to the reality of the night, Blanche was at a Chamber of Commerce presidential inauguration for William Buster Collier, the local businessman who wanted Blanche as his first lady, but he croaked just a few days after being sworn in. In a back-in-Georgia story that rivals any madness that spews out of Rose's mouth, Blanche shares that Billy's cause of death was nothing out of the ordinary. He was just doing his duty of breaking in a new toll booth with a bottle of champagne and proceeded to get trampled by ten Shriners on mini bikes. As Blanche is saving her wow factor for later in the evening, she's wearing one of her best monochromatic suits, the darker coral being the t-shirt, with the pants and jacket maintaining a step-up-from-white-but-not-full-flea-puce lighter coral. Meanwhile, Dorothy looks like the -the off-the-rack version of Gone with the Wind's iconic heavy velvet drapes, with her sweater wrap bringing us some olive green but not too green and a sort of maroon trim. The real winner here is Rose, who's wearing an impressionism-inspired floral dress with yellow, blue, white, and pink. If it wasn't clashing with the ugly-ass wallpaper in the background so much, it would be pretty perfect. Rose has come from the other room to tell the girls that the party they will be attending was listed in the newspaper. Even more exciting, there's a list of guests that will be there. They included, but weren't limited to, Dom DeLuise, Best known by me as the voice of Tiger the Cat in the Fivel movies, he was also in huge comedies like Spaceballs and Blazing Saddles. He was probably invited to the party as he worked alongside Bert in Cannonball Run and All Dogs Go to Heaven. He was hilarious and much adored. As for Lonnie Anderson, Lonnie and Bert were married in 1988, divorcing in 94, so she was an automatic plus one. While her marriage to Burt brought more fame, Lonnie was already well-known, getting her start on WKRP in Cincinnati. Besides WKRP, she had over 60 other roles, including stints on The Love Boat and the Golden Girl Zone spinoff, Empty Nest. Lonnie is still working to this day. Okay, Charles Nelson Reilly. I love Charles Nelson Reilly. If you ever watched any of the old match games, like from the 1970s, you know the flamboyant smoking-drinking Charles. He was known mostly for theater, but did do plenty of television and movies. I'm thinking his invite came from having worked with Bert on Cannonball Run 2 and All Dogs Go to Heaven. I'm not quite sure why the girls kind of ignore the fact that he's there, maybe just because he was a game show guy. But so was Betty White, so maybe it was their own joke to him. I don't know. And the final invitee, John Forsythe. Besides being the voice of Charles on Charlie's Angels, John was known, like Bert, as a sexy hunk machine. I do believe we've discussed him before, and this won't be the last time either. At the time of this event, he was hot stuff as a regular on the hit show Dynasty. So yeah, Blanche is right. That is a lot of manly sex appeal to be in one place. As she starts to realize just how much sexy and how little space she's going to be in, she starts to lose it melting into her own horniness, crushing the newspaper under her sweaty, erotic hands. As Dorothy works to cool Blanche down, the hotel's phone rings. Before I can go any further in the story, I simply must stop to acknowledge all of Dorothy's outfit now that she's standing. It turns out her pants are the pukey green color as well. I'm sorry, that's not pants. It's a skirt. A straight, boring skirt, making her look like something out of a Greek mythology story wherein she's been partially turned into a human-like column. It's not shapely, is what I'm trying to get at. So Rose has answered the phone, and in only hearing one side, it's pretty clear what's going on. Sophia has called the room, pretending to be the publisher's clearinghouse, a supposed non-scam that people can enter to win money. Rose thinks she's won, and the only direction she's being given is to leave her ticket to the event on the dresser. Knowing what's going on, Dorothy runs to the connecting doors and yells out to her ma to leave Rose alone. Turning back, Rose smirks with delight at her own detective skills as she says, I think this is Sophia. Down in the lobby, a thrilling new location, we see a desk clerk who's flipping through a book and a man with a young woman dressed in comically late 80s clothes make their way in the door. Approaching the clerk, she asks about a room. Handing over a key, we quickly learn what kind of business this hotel is in. One where the room is $50 and the girl is 100
1: Savvy viewers may notice a sex worker in the background there dressed as a cute little pirate.
0: Yeah, she had some real like
1: uh, a gypsy
0: era Stevie Nicks scarfiness going Very much. on. Very if much. Stevie Nicks and a pirate had a baby.
1: She's doing a good job of selling herself.
0: Yeah, you're. You spotted her. You're like, hey, now
1: zeroed right in. Pirate. Arr.
0: <laughs> also, there's that huge gold palm tree statue thing. I don't know if you caught that, and it gave me flashbacks to the big stuffed palm tree at the cop's house, the the from Nice and Easy episode. Oh, I remember the Miami Vice cop. Yeah, <laughs> the Miami Vice cop. Totally and he had that huge stuffed palm tree. Indeed. And then this hotel has this like ten foot tall metal thing. It's like, guys, they're outside we can just walk outside
1: but there aren't that many weird fake ones around and the golden girls has us covered on that
0: that's true should we start having fake ferns and stuff in our house
1: yes (laughs) we do we need more life here
0: it's just the two of us we only have 40 trees in our yard
1: what kind of trees are those
0: oh i don't i'll have to ask my mom beautiful
1: remind me tonight beautiful trees
0: Playing the first sex worker is Suzanne Spoke, a.k.a. the girl in the lobby. This was actually her first acting gig, and she has since gone on to earn more than 80 roles. Still working to this day, Suzanne has three gigs in post. Her second job, La. La. Some of her more notable roles were in the Jacket episode of Seinfeld, leading to the Larry Sanders show. She was on Lois and Clark, Beverly Hills 90210. Step by Step, Party of Five, The Jamie Foxx Show, Family Matters, Third Rock from the Sun, Krippendorf's Tribe, The Clueless TV Series, That 70 Show, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, Weeds, ER, Gilmore Girls, and one of the funniest, most underrated comedies ever, Happy Endings. More recently, she was in the Oscar-winning film Whiplash. As the desk clerk, we have Ron Capra. Only acting for eight years, he worked on some iconic shows such as Trapper John M.D., Benson, and M.A.S.H., Don't worry, we'll see him soon as he returns to the girls as the stage manager for Mr. Terrific... Unaware that their cheapskate ways have brought them to a pay-by-the-hour type of establishment, the ladies make their way from their rooms to the lobby, waiting to leave for the movie. Wearing her light blue dress, we'll see her in many more times, is Rose, who has decided to not exaggerate her rockin' body with curves. Rather, she's wearing a dropped waist, which makes her torso look stretched like Play-Doh and her legs as short as my mother's. All of that working against her, yet she still looks so great, of course. Blanche has accentuated her dress with a rainbow fish inspired wrap and Dorothy has gone the route of answering the question, what if Mormon undergarments were turned into a wedding dress? Either that or what if you turned the hanging jowls of the eyes in his hand monster from Pan's Labyrinth into a dress? I think either of those descriptions work. They do all make it work and there are elements to beauty in all of it, but it's just so hard to find sometimes. As Blanche explains, she decided on that hotel because it had the most men in the lobby. Dorothy is anxious to just leave for the party and doesn't want to be late. But Blanche is wanting to make a meal out of the entire night. So she asked the girls to grab a drink with her at the bar. Making their way to the hotel bar, it's clear why Blanche liked it there. Nothing but men in business suits as far as the eye can. Did Dorothy just snap at the waitress to get her attention? I love Dorothy. I relate the most to Dorothy. But, Lord, she can be rude sometimes.
1: Yeah, if we're on the Golden Girls cruise, we better not see any rudeness towards anybody. <laughs>
0: yeah, we're you know, we still locked in for the cruise. We're thinking it's probably not going to happen probably to be not. able to travel, but that'll be okay. But if we are, if we see any of you snap at somebody. Mm.
1: Yeah, when we get back to being able to do things like that. Oh, yeah. Zero tolerance. Oh, yeah. You hear me?
0: Blanche is, of course, quick to notice the man staring at her, undressing her with his eyes. Letting the girls know that that was what was going on, Rose is normal about it and asks if Blanche wants to move. Rose really does know how to ask a dumb question. Coming to the table in their hideous outfits all the way from Kenosha, Wisconsin, are Carl, John, and Walter. They're in town for a clothing convention, and Carl is a little freak who's into leather play. Okay, Carl. Playing Carl is Ron Michelson. This was his first credited role, but it didn't do much for his career in the 90s. Then in 2003, he was on the hit show Carnival, followed by Joan of Arcadia, Entourage, Veep, and Tim and Eric's Bedtime Stories. Playing the John named John is Tony Schwartz. He had acted on shows like The Invisible Man, Kojak, Dynasty, and the 1970s Battlestar Galactica. While he wasn't an actor in his later years, he was still in the acting world, listing Driver as a job he had on the set of About Schmidt. Tony passed away in 2016 at the age of 73. And playing Walter is Peter Gonneau. He hasn't worked since 1994, but before his apparent retirement, he was on Wings, Knots Landing, Dallas, Cheers, Falcon Crest, and Barnaby Jones. While the guys are making jokes about being Johns, the use of that term referring to men that solicit sex workers just kind of happened, as John is a common name, so it was often used when someone wanted to hide their identity. The ladies aren't sure what these guys are referencing, assuming they're just weirdos from Wisconsin. Not realizing the type of women in the lobby or that the guys are making sexual innuendos, they don't think anything of it when Creepy Carl asks how long they've been working. Although from Dorothy's perspective, it did seem like a strange way to start a conversation. So, being literal and not realizing he's asking how long she's been a sex worker, she does the math and shares she's been working for about 30 years. This causes John's eyes to light up. Wowzers. Then you must be an expert. The double entendres and innuendo continue until John just outright invites the girls up to the room. As the ladies stand up to leave while turning the guys down, their white male fragility starts to show, John even pulling the whole, I don't even want to talk to you anymore, you ugly bitch, with a, Fine, we'll just pay another working girl. In that second, horror comes across Dorothy's face when she realizes that they have been mistaken for sex workers, leaving Rose and Blanche with faces of confusion. With horrified, urgent whispering, Dorothy grabs the girls. Pay another girl? Do you know what they think we are? Matching her intensity, Rose asks, Waitresses? With a scrunched up face. Then, with a growl only matched by the Shrek dragon, Dorothy clarifies. Hookers. While the origin of the word hooker being used to describe sex workers is unclear, there are a few theories. One, that it means to hook, like a fishing hook or that it means an area of New York that was kind of known for it, or perhaps someone's last name. No matter the origin, the term is outdated and shouldn't be used anymore. Hence, sex worker. As the ladies take stock of everyone in the lobby, Ellen, I mean the policeman, comes bursting in through the lobby doors. And he's wearing his best Pee Wee Herman work collection suit, announcing there's a raid going on and everyone is under arrest. Playing the policeman is Peter Jason. He is a prolific character actor, and you've definitely seen him around. He's still working with 10 projects now in post production. He started out in 1967 with shows like FBI, Hawaii 50, and Gunsmoke. His career has covered every genre, from One Life to Live to Perfect Strangers. He was also in Quantum Leap, Roseanne, Coach, Deadwood, NCIS, Baskets, Heart to Heart, Silver Spoons. In addition to all of that, he's done voiceover work for the Batman series, Gears of War, and Fallout 2. He's also had a successful movie career, making his mark on Mommy Dearest, Hunt for Red October, Arachnophobia, Escape from L.A., Dante's Peak, Adaptation, Seabiscuit, Milk, 48 Hours, The Karate Kid, and They Live. Not to mention one of Coco's faves, Congo.
1: He's in Congo? Yes. What is he in Congo?
0: Well, I don't Kong know.
1: Let me Kong think about it.
0: (laughs) And you said he's your favorite first first.
1: He's a firsty firsty, yeah. What is a firsty
0: firsty, Coco?
1: It's when the first and last names are both first names.
0: That's right. Such as Peter, Jason.
1: Michael, Jackson.
0: Jackson's. Mm Hmm. Oh, that was fun. That was a harmony.
1: (laughs) That's cool. We are dwarfs in the company of a giant.
0: Outside the hotel, we see red lights flashing, meaning it is time to retire. Inside the lobby, the ladies are calmly sitting at the bar table, awaiting their ride downtown to the police station, not to the high-end store Neiman Marcus. Rose is panicking. She knows she won't survive prison. She's not made for it. Running the worst-case scenario through her head, she knows it won't take long before she's got a prison boss who looks like the late musical comedy legend Ethel Merman. Which, looking at Ethel and looking at Kate Mulgrew from Orange is the New Black, you kind of get an idea of the type of lady Rose is talking about. Spiraling out of control with her catastrophizing, Rose soon has an entire story played out, one where she no longer has fingerprints, is running from the law, and is eventually riddled with a sheriff's bullets. Dorothy saying Rose can't handle a crisis is the understatement of the century. Logic finally sets in, and Dorothy approaches the officer, who is totally ageist in calling her the senior statesman, and she starts to make her plea for innocence. I mean, I would just say, hi, could you just run my name? You will see I don't have any priors. Here are our tickets for the show happening tonight, and it's like across the street. Here's our home address. Here's our mother in the room who might vouch for us. You know, something like that.
1: Ma'am, ma'am, please be quiet. We have to figure out what's going on here. We don't have time. We don't have time for this statement. Just get under arrest, please. please, please. I say. Pleased. Please
0: get under arrest. Pleased. <laughs> Instead, as Dorothy starts to explain, soon every girl around her starts to echo this sentiment. Yeah, we're all innocent. Which elicits one of Blanche's most quotable quotes. With an annoyed whisper, she hisses, Quiet, you trash from across the lobby. Remember that story I told about the downtowner inn in Houston with the gross bathroom and the porn on the TV? Again, relating to Dorothy. Was I thinking the cops would mistake me for a sex worker when, in my tiny tank top and miniature shorts and lucky tiny suitcase, I ran up to them and asked directions to the nearest pay-by-the-hour motel? No. Did my friends? Yes. Were we lucky to get out of there without being arrested? Definitely. So, I understand Dorothy's seemingly inappropriate offer to settle the miscommunication to the officer's satisfaction.
1: How old were you when you were doing running around in your little tank top and shorts? 19. In Houston? Ooh, nice. <laughs> that is all. Bouncy, bouncy. <laughs>
0: mm. And I had a body I would kill for now that I hated with every fiber of my being, then isn't that fun? Desperate to explain, Blanche runs up to the officer to tell him about the Burt Reynolds party, which only serves to offend him as she has brought Bert's good name into such a seedy situation. Leaving the lobby, we're treated to another new location, a jail cell. Locked away with the sex workers from the hotel, the girls are traumatized by the American prison industrial complex, the violation of fingerprints and photos, squatting and pat-downs. This isn't just about Rose, though. She's worried she's brought such shame to her family, she won't be able to go home again. As comforting as Blanche tries to be in this moment, Rose can't help but remind her of the investigative skills of the St. Olafian newspaper. And yes, oat fungus is a real thing.
1: Um, oat fungus just affects oats, or does it affect people who eat oats?
0: Um, I I just took a quick glance because I didn't want to spend a lot of time talking about oat fungus, but it looks like it's... Tell uh... me! <laughs> Yeah, it affects the crop, so I don't think it affects people because they have to destroy the crop before it can get to that point.
1: Poor oats.
0: (laughs) Blanche can't be bothered to be upset about having a criminal record. She's too distraught over missing the show. Desperate to do what she can to get to it, she hollers out to the guard. Bemoaning, she shares that there's been a mistake and all they need is a strong man to help them. With a graceful turn, we see our prison guard turn around for a big reveal. She is a he. Nice try, Blanche, but your flirting won't work this time.
1: Not necessarily.
0: Well, Blanche is cool about it, but I don't think she...
1: You don't think that she'd eat a box lunch to get out of prison?
0: I think she's... I think she has experienced that before, but I don't think it's her cup of tea. So I don't know that she would... Maybe for Burt Reynolds, yeah. As Blanche explains she would have gotten help if the guard had been a man, Rose hits her limits. They're in this whole situation because Blanche had to flirt with the guy at the bar. It's always about men and sex, men and sex. The ladies get more and more heated in their argument, to the point that Blanche says, You think I want to be in here with all this common gutter trash? Sparking a, what did you say? from one of their cellmates and a terrified recoil from Dorothy. As the ladies fight, they're putting on quite a show for their cellmates, listed as Meg, Hooker One, Hooker Two, and Hooker Three. Starting with Hooker One, or Sex Worker One, is Cheryl Cecchetto. She's the one offering Blanche the first punch in the newly initiated fight. With only three total acting credits, Cheryl's first gig was this one. Her third and final was on The Oldest Rookie, and sandwiched between was none other than La La. Stepping in to defend her friends is Dorothy, who starts her you-feel-lucky-punk voice from the break-in episode. Besides being the tallest of the group, Dorothy tries to earn some street cred, so she throws in that she did time in New York's notoriously dangerous prison, Attica. The only problem with that? It's a men's prison, which this gal actually knew. Dorothy's quick with her comeback, though. Yeah, I know it is. I was there a year before they knew I was a woman. Whoa, damn. That works, and the gals back off with the fight. Rose and Blanche are impressed by Dorothy's ability to stand up to such a tough gal. Cool, calm, and collected Dorothy states the obvious. Guys, I work in public schools. This is nothing. And she's not wrong. As someone that has served time in public schools, 13 years, I've seen all the things you'd see in a prison. This moment leads to all of the girls making up and apologizing. When Rose goes to start a St. Olaf story about disappointment, Dorothy stops her. We've heard the one about the exploding pig. Ah, says Rose, but it was a peg-legged pig. It was the possum that exploded. Rose's actual biggest disappointment was when she wasn't picked for Butter Queen. Looking to Blanche, she responds with, I always liked her in Gone with the Wind. This is a reference to the actress Butterfly McQueen, who played Prissy in the 1939 film. She continued acting all the way into 1989 before passing away in 1995. As Blanche continues to twaddle on about Gone with the Wind, she candidly admits she's barely paying attention to what Rose is saying. Rose continues, sharing all the work she did towards her Butter Queen. When it was time for the pageant, she did everything right, but then her churn jammed. Also, if we were actually able to travel in January and go on the Golden Girls cruise, I think we should definitely host a Butter Queen pageant. And while Rose didn't win the big prize, she did find out later that her churn had been messed with. Dorothy and Blanche have heard enough, and they banish Rose to one side of the cell. Sitting on the bench alone, that's when Meg, in her bright blue leggings, a lacy top, and a fluffy blue wrap shirt thing I probably definitely ordered from the Delia's catalog in the 90s, and a huge pink bow in her hair, has a seat next to Rose. She overheard that she was from St. Olaf, And it turns out Meg was originally from St. Gustav. While St. Olaf is a real place in Minnesota, St. Gustav is not. Meg is being played by Rhonda Aldrich. She started acting in 1963 on General Hospital. Her soap opera days continued as she appeared on Days of Our Lives and Young and the Restless. Another voice actor, she did multiple voices on the animated series Rainbow Bright. She went on to be on Star Trek The Next Generation, Red Shoe Diaries, La, Married with Children, Empty Nest, Walker, Texas Ranger, Crocodile Dundee in Los Angeles, ER, Night of the Living Dead 3D, Criminal Minds, and Without a Trace. Leaving home at a young age, the Minnesota native Meg ended up in Florida and on her way caught a New York accent. Instead of asking Meg how or why she was in the position she was, which is, you know, rude to do, Rose goes even more rude and starts to judge Meg, pushing her away by saying things like, nothing at home could be this bad. Hey, hey, Rose, come here. Hey, don't kink shame, okay? Don't sex worker shame, okay? You don't know her deal, so just lay off, okay? As Meg gets rightfully offended and walks away from Rose, we cut to the jail hallway where we see Sophia in a purple dress making her way to the ladies. At first, Sophia plays off that she's disappointed her girls were arrested. Before Dorothy can even finish proclaiming her innocence, Sophia's like, duh, I just can't believe these cops were so dumb as to think someone would pay to have sex with you. When Rose asks if Sophia is there to bail them out, Dorothy sarcastically answers, no, she's brought a manicotti, a.k.a. a large pasta tube filled with cheese, with a file hidden in it. While a file being snuck into a prison is a bit of a trope, it's actually something that used to happen. There are still escapes that take place thanks to pieces of contraband being snuck in. As Blanche starts to celebrate that they'll get to meet Bert, Sophia makes things clear. I'm here to bail you out. One of you have to bail on the party. Blanche makes a strong argument. She won the tickets. Dorothy's is fairly good. It's her mother that's bailing them out. Sorry, Rose. Even crying all these years later about your Butter Queen loss isn't enough to make you worthy of a ticket. Unwilling to budge, Sophia is in shock they would let her bail them out, but not let her go to the show. This sends Dorothy into a screaming tizzy as Sophia tells the guard she doesn't see the roommate she's there to bail out. Playing the guard is Jim Kylie. He, too, only had three acting credits, a TV version of Weird Science, The Golden Girls, and Married with Children. Shifting from acting to story development, Jim was a story editor and writer for Caroline in the City, a writer for Charles in Charge, Grace Under Fire, Married with Children, Weird Science, and According to Jim. He was also a producer for a handful of other shows. Fed up with her selfish children, Sophia rips the tickets from Blanche's hand. As they scream and cry, she can only say one thing. Who cares? I'm on my way to see Burt Reynolds. Before we leave the cell, let's talk about the two other sex workers featured. First is Ursuline Bryant. She's still working to this day. Ursuline got her start on the Red Fox show, had her Golden Girls moment, and went on to do Star Trek Next Generation, Doogie Hauser M.D., Seinfeld, and Grace Under Fire. And now to Amelia Kincaid. I have been so excited all week to get to this, Coco, to tell you this story. I can't wait. She's the one that, when Rose is yelling, sex and men, men and sex, responds with, there's nothing wrong with being career-oriented. Okay, buckle up for some fun facts. First and foremost, she is Rue's niece A year prior, Rue had just moved out to Hollywood following her niece who had hopes of being a professional dancer, which she did. She was a dancer for The Four Tops, Ray Charles, and Smokey Robinson. This led to music video opportunities with The Stray Cats, Scorpions, Sheena Easton, and Cher. That led to dancing gigs in movies like Girls Just Want to Have Fun, Fast Forward, Fame, and Roadhouse. Then came acting. She didn't do much, but what she did ruled. She was the first ever she-devil in a horror film as the star of Night of the Demons, which is a rad-as-hell old horror flick. She went on to star in the sequels and was even honored as an inductee to the Horror Movie Hall of Fame. Then, oh boy, she left acting to pursue her true talent as a pet psychic. She has written books about telepathically speaking with your pets. She can come to your house to work with you and your pet to tell you what your pet is thinking and feeling. You can even attend her two-day seminar about telepathic connections between you and your pets. The most fun facts for anyone ever. Coco, any thoughts? Because I know we both love Night of the Demons.
1: That's just so much to absorb. (laughs) When we have the money... We need to hire her to yes. tell us what our sweet Rosie darling is thinking. Wow, that's really surprising. I didn't know. I didn't know anything about the, her other than Night of the Demons. So to hear that her history is very interesting, and she's great in that movie. Yeah, and thinking about it now, that that character. I think her name's Angela in Night of the Demons. Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, moves kind of like a dancer she's a she's a specter yeah. and a demon and she does kind of move around like that she's in like i think a, an all-black wedding dress or like a death yeah dress there's or a long
0: yeah there's definitely a flowy oh. gown i can picture and, it. A,
1: and i think a veil too mm-hmm. it's a very cool look
0: that's a cool yeah, movie
1: a classic 80s movie uh 80s you know horror slash you're yeah. you know not the best movie but kind of the best movie
0: Back at the house, the three little babies are sitting on the couch. Dorothy is in an oversized sweater with an iconic 80s pattern of gray with light blue pants. Blanche is curled up in what can only be described as if her jumpsuit from the God, I wish I was dead moment had a baby with her blue dress she was supposed to wear to the Burt Reynolds party. It is great. And Rose, in her most mumsy, I lost the butter queen, pale pink and blue dress with a lace trimmed beige cardigan over it. They're all pouting as a red cardigan over a Christmas napkin-patterned dress wearing Sophia shares her stories from the night before, name-dropping all the celebrities she can just to rub it in. Should Sophia have taken at least one of them? Probably. But they were all jerks to not try and figure out a better compromise than you're the outcast. So maybe Sophia's right that they're just jealous Cinderella is back from the ball. Dorothy digresses. They aren't jealous. They're mad that they were left behind in jail. Who cares if she was eating shrimp out of country star Jerry Reed's hands? Unable to stand it any longer, Dorothy calls her mother out. This is just another colorful moment where you're making everything up to make us feel bad. Sophia's response is one that lives in infamy, quoted to this very day.
1: Jealousy is a very ugly thing, Dorothy. And so are you in anything backless.
0: (laughs) As Sophia makes her way out of the living room, the doorbell rings. The ladies all look at each other, and Rose finally decides to be the one to go answer it. It's none other than her Minnesotan neighbor and cellmate, Meg. She wanted to stop by and say goodbye and thank you to Rose. Because of their talk, she's decided to go back home. Sadly, it wasn't that Rose said something so powerful that it made her want to leave Miami. It was that she didn't want to get as old as Rose and still be working in the industry. Thanks? This whole exchange left Rose feeling wonderful and cheap all in the same moment. When the doorbell rings again, it's Dorothy's turn to answer it. When she does, the whole house, audience, and viewers at home all take a collective gasp. There, in person, in all of his tall, dark, and handsome glory, in a tan suit with a blue plaid undershirt, is the one, the only, Mr. Burt Reynolds. Classically chomping on his gum or cheek or whatever his mouth thing was all about, he asks if Sophia is home. I don't know if it's the angle of this shot or that Dorothy's sweater, especially around the neck, is really oversized, but there's something so, dare I say, sexy about her here. Maybe it's just that her horniness looks really good on her. Seeing him at the door, Blanche makes her way towards Bert with a hushed, Oh my God, you're Mr. Bert Reynolds. His response is an unsexy one when he says, hope so. Otherwise, I've got the wrong underwear on. Hopefully a joke of how, yes, dudes used to write their names on the inside of their undies. And maybe they still do. I'm not really sure why. Maybe it was a if you had brothers thing. I just don't know. Coco, did you ever write your name in your underwear or know someone that did? Why would someone do that?
1: Uh, Never have, never would, never will, never knew anyone that did. I don't think anyone did that. And I won't accept anyone saying that they did.
0: Thank you. Hearing his voice from her room, Sophia comes rushing out with a, oh, hi, Bert. It turned out the stories were true, and now Sophia is going out to lunch with Bert. In fact, if the girls had been nicer, they probably could have gotten an invite. Instead, they get a hasty introduction with Bert asking the most important question. So, uh, which one's the slut? Here, they're obviously making the joke that Sophia told Bert about Blanche's promiscuous ways. In the hope that they might have a chance to sleep with Bert should he be in the market for a slut, all three girls shoot their arms into the air before Bert and Sophia turn and leave. I love, too, that here he is like the ultimate sex symbol, manly man, and his name's Bert. Once you remove the Hollywood sex appeal of Bert Reynolds, you know, when it's together, and then it's just like, what are you doing Tuesday, Bert?
1: I, I believe it's short for Burtis.
0: That's not real. First and foremost, sex work is work. So let's all be better about our verbiage and judgments. Sex workers aren't asking for your pity or speeches. And in my humble opinion, sex work should be decriminalized. Why are we clogging our judicial system with adults that are making consensual decisions? Anyway, when it comes to friendships, sometimes people get left out but it's how you handle it that makes all the difference. Could the girls have tried to make a compromise with Sophia? You let us go to this and we'll send you to the Bahamas for a weekend or Disney World? Sure, they probably wouldn't have ended up in the position they did, totally missing out on everything. So the next time you're worried about FOMO, talk it out, and hopefully it'll turn into my new favorite term, JOMO, the joy of missing out. As always, thank you for listening, and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to tune in next week when we find out if Mrs. Blanche Devereaux will become Mrs. Blanche Zabornak and Take Him, He's Mine. Today's golden goodies comes from a personal favorite of mine, Heck Yes Y'all. And yes, that's where I first heard the term JOMO. And if you go to her website, you can enjoy missing out as well. Check out at heck underscore yes underscore y'all on Instagram and do the following steps. Follow Hillary's page for adorable content. Click the link in her bio. Visit her Etsy page and you can get an eat dirt and die trash shirt or one of her many other shirts or baby onesies with classic quotes. And to class the whole thing up, you can get some of her precious collar pins. That's heck yes y'all on Instagram or at etsy.com slash shop slash heck yes, y'all, and delight in all of her golden goodies. Mm. Oh, this Diet Coke. Uh. Wait, I didn't have a Coke. (laughs) After using a bunch of $10 words when simple ones would have done, the Plammers... Plammers. (laughs) And this was a time I actually had two dates in one night. And
1: I had. You whore!
0: He was also a guy who's in the middle of a divorce and he had to change his name because he and the wife had just kind of mushed up their names and made up a new last name.
1: (laughs) That's stupid.
0: (laughs) That's a Coco
1: Oh Boy. (laughs) Coco Nuh Uh. <laughs> if you're going to make an if you if you're like we're going to go through the process of oh my God. doing all of this, make it cool.
0: Yeah, it doesn't have to be your names mashed up. Be like our last name is Clayborg. Kraken. Millionaire. My name's
1: Josh Cyborg Kraken Bazooka. <laughs> did you say Bazooka? I did. That's a cool last name. I've always I, I used to when I was like, "Oh man, if I ever have a kid, it'd be cool to give them like the middle name Bazooka."
0: They would have been out of control. I had. I've had more than one student whose middle name was Danger. That's much different. They were,
1: well, awful. Write that down. How am I going to do that with this pen? (laughs) With a
0: pen. (laughs) With the pen in your hand. Still had love for each other on some level.
1: Yeah, I I didn't pick it. I didn't pick it for any reason other than than the. I didn't pick it for any reason other than that. Oh my God. Oh. My God!
0: <laughs> Have one thing lead to another. No pre-planning. Oh, how I miss those days.
1: Have we reached the? It's the this... end, it's the end of this
0: paragraph. Yet? It's the end of this paragraph.
1: It looks so delicious.
0: funk They're like not dramatic weeping willows. They're like yeah. willows.
1: Straight up, they're not weeping about it. Mm-mm. They're just, Little they're babies. just going about their business.
0: <laughs> they're just carrying on
1: like grown-ups. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, I didn't see your hand. Sorry.
1: What's the point of having hands?
0: <laughs> Coming to the table with their hideous outfits, all the way from Kenosha, Wisconsin, are John. <laughs> Playing the John named John is Tony Schwartz. He acted on shows like The Invisible Man, Kojak Dynasty, and in the 1970s, G- Gattlestar Balactica.
1: Gares, geets, <laughs> Gattlestar <Star> Balactica. Balactica.
0: <laughs> While he wasn't an actor in later years, he was still in the acting world. Wow, where's my voice gone, mouth? Oh. Uh musical comedy legend Ethel Merman.
1: Uh
0: <sighs> I'm so sorry. I tried I'm so sorry. I tried to warn and it
1: I couldn't and I'm sorry. Who?
0: <laughs> I'm sorry.
1: No, no no no. I've gone blind from that noise. the noise. F- f- I even
0: moved so far away. I moved
1: as far away. It's like My eyes have gone completely white, you know. You had a question?
0: Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sister. Quiet, you trash.